The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Let's go ahead and open up to Revelation 20. Just to bring you up to speed, if you're visiting today, uh, we are going through the book of Revelation. Start at the very beginning, because that's the way John the Apostle wrote it, and he wanted us to go from beginning to end, the whole thing. It is scripture, it is the revelation of God, it is the very words of God, and so that's how we need to study it, and so that's what we've done, and we've gone through for many months uh, the book of Revelation. We got through the tribulation, whew, that was hard, and now we're entering into glory, how exciting, and that's Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. The kingdom finally manifest as God intended, not only in ancient past through his prophecies, but also in the eternal mind of God in eternity past. Uh, God had a plan and it was going somewhere to reach fruition. And it was to display his glory through his kingdom to redeemed sinners and the rest of the world. And that all comes to a culmination and is manifest with the earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth in answer to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. On earth. That hasn't happened yet. Jesus prayed that 2,000 years ago. On earth as it is in heaven. God, may heaven come down and display itself literally on the earth. That has not happened. But that is Jesus' prayer and desire. It is his will. And every I would say that every prayer of Jesus always gets answered. And so that prayer that Jesus made is literally going to be answered on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what Revelation 19 and 20 is about. At the end of 6,000 years plus of world history, finally, God's plan is literally fulfilled as Jesus Christ, the King of glory and resurrected majesty, comes and returns to earth, the earth that He created to reign as the glorious king of that earth. And he reigns in his kingdom with a rod of iron as the king for 1,000 years, according to the Bible. And then, there's, and then that transitions into the eternal phase of the kingdom. And we'll see that in Revelation 21 and 22. So that's just kind of a synopsis of where we're at. As we've been going through Revelation, as you know, as we've been studying Revelation, Revelation is, for the most part, chronological and sequential. It begins with things relative to the churches 2,000 years ago, the church age over the course of 2,000 years, then the future seven-year tribulation, which is yet to come, and then at the end of that tribulation is the second coming of Christ, who comes and reigns, lands on earth, and then he reigns for literally a 1,000 years, which hasn't happened yet, which is yet future, and then there's something that's going to happen at the end of that 1,000 years. And that's the way Revelation lays it out. Actually, that's the way that God has laid it out through His Spirit, through His Apostle. And I think of that precious phrase in Revelation 19, right in the middle of the chapter. These are the true words of God. These are the true words of God. And that's the way we need to approach every book in the Bible. We read it. We understand it. We believe it. We apply it. We take God at his word. We take scripture at face value. And that's the approach I'm going to take with Revelation chapter 21 through 10. Follow along as I read. So after the second coming of Christ, Jesus lands in Jerusalem. There's a war. Jesus is victorious in that bloody war. He crushes all of his enemies. His saints are rescued that are living on the earth. And then he's got redeemed saints that he brought with him from heaven. And he's ready to begin his reign literally on the earth. And that's where John picks up in Revelation 20 with another detailed vision. And John says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And the angel bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4, and I saw thrones. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life 
And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I don't know if you're paying attention, but six times I said a thousand years. I think. When God says something one time, we believe it. If he says it six times, hmm, we should really, 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 really believe it. A thousand years. This is what happens after Jesus Christ returns to earth and he reigns for a thousand years. And there are events that happen before that thousand year period. There are events going on during the duration of that literal 1000 year period. And there is something very specific that happens at the conclusion or in the words of John, when the thousand years is completed, something Specific happens that God has prophesied about. I remember 1992 was the first time I ever preached on Revelation 21 through 6. I preached a 30-minute sermon. Actually, it was in homiletics or preaching class in seminary. 1991. It was like 20 years ago. I still have the videotape. It's, it's pathetic. Um, good blackmail material, but anyway. 20 years ago. 30-minute sermon, Revelation 21 through 6, 1991. Then in 1996, when I was pastoring in the state of Utah, I preached once again, five years later, on Revelation chapter 21 through 10. Then in 1999, when I moved to Texas and was a pastor and elder there, I preached again on Revelation chapter 21 through 6, 1999, for the third time. Three years later, moved to the Bay Area here and was at a church and a pastor and I preached for the fourth time, Revelation chapter 21 through 6, 2002. And so now I have the privilege in 2011 to preach really for the fifth time on Revelation chapter 21 through 6 or 1 through 10. Uh, I bring that up because I've, I was thinking of I two good friends of mine, two very close friends of mine that are pastors and that are actually mentors to me. Guys I look up to and have sought counsel and advice and encouragement for a long period of time, we're very close friends. Uh, one probably went to seminary 35 to 40 years ago, and the other one was in seminary probably 25 years ago. And they've been pastoring ever since then. Uh, one went to... Oh, and before... During seminary, both these guys believed in the dispensational, premillennial, literal view of Revelation chapter 21 through 6, like I'm going to present today. That's just reading it, taking it at face value, and believing it. And both of these men took that approach and believed that the millennium or the reign of Christ was a real 1,000 years on the earth when they were in seminary 25, 35 years ago. And then within the last 5 to 10 years, I've actually talked to both of them and they told me they have changed their mind. They've recanted their view. They no longer believe that. They've adopted other views. One, uh, the guy that's been pastoring for about 30 years, he now believes in amillennialism. Uh, in other words, there is no real... Ah means not. There is no 1,000-year reign of Christ in the future on the earth. And I said, so, well, when is the millennium? Well, it's, it's actually happening right now. The millennium is the church age. Well, wait a minute. The church age has been going on for 1,972 years. That's not 1,000. 1,900 is not equal and synonymous with 1,000. But the text says 1,000 years. And as we were talking, he did not want to talk about the text in Revelation when we were talking about the millennium. He'd go around it, over it, back door. No, let's talk about Genesis, Psalms, whatever. But let's not settle in the text and talk about the details of the text of Revelation 20. Being evasive all over the place. Now, if you want to talk about justification, he had no problem of settling down in Romans chapter 3, detail all the verbs and the parsing, whatever else. But the millennium, 
He didn't. He was not comfortable staying in Revelation 20 because you can't get around it. But the, again, this is a very good friend of mine even to this day, and a, a confidant and a counselor and a mentor. So we just agreed to disagree. And it actually hasn't hindered our friendship. Uh, but I just continue to challenge him. Hey, man, why, if you're going to take Romans 3 at face value, why not Revelation 20? I, I don't get it. And then my other good buddy, uh, who used to be a dispensationalist premillennialist, he's now an amillennialist slash confused what he told me he's older than i am he was on my elder council or my uh, ordaining council and he's admitted uh yeah i don't know what to think of revelation anymore in the book as a matter of fact i don't i don't think i'll ever preach on that book to my congregation i was like wow chapter one says he who reads and obeys and hears is blessed by revelation why would you deprive your congregation of that but specifically because he didn't know what to do with certain portions especially chapter 20 he used to believe it was a thousand years. Now he doesn't believe it. And again, well, let's go look at the text and let's go verse by verse. He did not want to do that. Pulling out verses from all over the place, from everywhere except Revelation 20. So over the course of time, they changed their view. They became unsettled. And my good friend, I am confused. An experienced, trained, godly pastor 25 years later is confused. And when he reads Revelation 20, it is a fog. I'm thinking, so regarding my sermon I preached in 1991, I haven't changed my view one iota. I still believe the exact same thing. And because it's simple, because all I did back in 20 years ago is I just took it verse by verse, took it at face value, interpreted it literally, it made sense, boom, wow. It's really that simple. So you need to know that because... You're going to be influenced wherever you go. Some of you have may have backgrounds that held to an amillennial view, and you're not sure why, but I believed it because that's how I grew up, and that's my pastor was a good man, and he should know because he went to seminary, and therefore I believe it. Or maybe you got a Bible study that's amill or postmill or confused. There's a lot of those kind of study Bibles. But it's not really that confusing. So let's go ahead and look at it. Let's just take it at face value. Let's read it, as chapter 1 said. Let's hear it, understand it, and then finally let's apply it. And as a result, God will bless. And I broke this, chapter, uh, this section up into three uh, chunks, three themes. So go ahead and look at your, if you want to look at your handout in the bulletin, hopefully it's helpful, give you a roadmap there. Three points that we're going to look at regarding this millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ. And before we get to the details of verses 1 through 10, just some introductory material on this sometimes very confusing topic of the millennium and are you amill? Are you postmill? Are you premill? Isn't that an irritating question? Well, here's hopefully some information to clear a little bit of the fog uh, by way of introduction. There are the letter A. The English word millennium is from, actually it's from Latin. The, the New Testament was written in Greek, but our word millennium is from the Latin. Mille meaning a thousand and annum meaning year, hence millennium. But from a biblical point of view, the Greek text, that's point B in Revelation 20, a thousand is the Greek word chilioi, which just means a thousand. A chiliarch, a guy who rules a thousand people. Chili, it's chilly outside. I guess that means it's like a thousand degrees below zero out here. I don't know. <laughs> Those who believe, so chilioi, a thousand, that's the Greek word used here six times. Chilioi, chilioi, and variants thereof. Those who believe in a literal future earthly millennium of a thousand years and a thousand year rule of Christ throughout church history since the time of Augustine have been called chilliests. So McManus is a chilliest. And by the way, that is not a compliment. It is a term of derision. It's an insult. And I wear that badge proudly as a badge of honor. Go ahead. Call me a chilliest. I dare you. Because that's what I believe. A literal 1000 years. Point C, John the Apostle. Get a load of this one. John the Apostle Best friend of Jesus, distant cousin of Jesus, who wrote how many? Three, four books of the New Testament. Five. John the Apostle believed in a literal future millennium. He was a chilliest. He says a thousand years, six times in Revelation. There's no reason to believe John didn't believe that when he wrote it down. So you're in good company if you believe that. A literal thousand years. D. The earliest church fathers embraced a literal future millennium, just as the text says in Revelation 20. It's undeniable. Even all millennialists will agree. Just, uh, uh, Justin Martyr, Papias, all of them. Just took it at face value and believed it. As far as we know in church history, it wasn't until a heretic came along named Martian the heretic. He was the first known opponent who was opposed to a literal 
1,000 years as taught in Revelation. Then he popularized it at a certain degree or level. It trickled into the church through Marcy and the heretic. And then F. Augustine came along. Augustine was a pagan, and then he got saved and did a lot of great things, and then he did some weird things too over the course of his life. But Augustine is credited for popularizing amillennialism. The, the thousand years is not future. The thousand years is not literal. And the thousand years is not on the earth. That's amillennialism. I believe the opposite of all three of those things. But Augustine popularized amillennialism through his allegorical hermeneutics. He didn't take the text literally. There's a lot of great things that Augustine wrote that are very edifying. So he's not all bad. He was a, an amazing man of God, actually. And just, I think, goofed up Revelation in other places. And then G, uh, Roman Catholic theology has been the guardian of amillennialism, amillennialism since the time of Augustine. And that's true today. So Roman Catholicism holds to an amillennial view of Revelation 20. And by the way, John Calvin and Martin Luther were Roman Catholic priests. So they believed all that Roman Catholic stuff when they were in the Roman Catholic Church. And then they studied the Scripture, got saved, came out of the Roman Catholic Church, tried to reform the Catholic Church, but they didn't abandon all of their Roman Catholic theology. Like infant baptism, amillennialism, different views about the Eucharist or communion. So they weren't totally purged and purified of being strictly biblical on all matters. And as a result, with Calvin and Luther and their influence, much of amillennialism has been preserved in the evangelical world. So that's why amillennialism and an amillennial non-literal view of Revelation 20 is actually a dominant view in American Christianity and world Christianity. So that's how we got here. Uh, but I need to say just a few things regarding a thousand years uh, and why I believe it's a literal thousand years because the text six times says so. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, and there's nothing in the text to tell me otherwise, that it's not true and that it's there's nothing there that tells me it's symbolic. Uh, 20, chapter 20, verse 2, the first time a thousand years is used in terms of the text and the details in the Greek. That's why they don't want to... People who are amillennialists don't want to deal with the nitty-gritty details of the text because if you do, you're going to get in trouble and you're going to end up believing in a literal 1,000 years. First example is when you look at the first appearance of a 1,000 in verse 2, Chilei, and the, the phrase that is used, a 1,000 years at the end of verse 2, in terms of the case in grammar, it is called, it's in the accusative case and it's an accusative of time. An accusative of the extent of time. Wow. That means it's referring to a very specific amount of time. So the grammar in the text itself. Uh, a thousand, here's one. A thousand years in the New Testament always equals a literal thousand years. There's a challenge for you for Bible study. Every time a thousand years is used in the New Testament, it always refers to a literal one thousand years. And the onus is on you if you're going to try to twist it into something indefinite or symbolic. I'll even go one step further. Every time the word a thousand is used in the entire Bible, it always refers to a literal one thousand. Here's another one that might shock you. Revelation uh, numbers, numbers used by John in the book of Revelation are literal. That's the rule of thumb. They are not symbolic. They are not indefinite. They are to be taken at face value and they are literal in terms of being understood. That is clear. Now, there are times when John wants to say things indefinitely, symbolically, or more so indefinitely, and he won't use literal numbers at those times, and it is clear. For example, the, the book opens up in Revelation chapter 1, and he says, uh, the time is near, and these must transpire in a short period of time. See, it's indefinite, a short period of time. He knows how to do that. And then the passages we already saw where he, he's looking at all these angels, and myriads upon myriads and countless angels. It, not a specific number. It's indefinite. It's too many to count. So it is clear. And there are several examples of him being indefinite uh, in Revelation. Uh, one in the very immediate context. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 8 at the end of the verse. Talk about indefinite. There's this war. Satan's going to gather a whole bunch of people from all over the earth. Well, how many people is he going to gather? Is it 144,000? No, that was a specific number he intended to use. And it's a literal 144,000. Because it's 12 times 1,200. You come up for 144,000. Or is it 200 million? Like he said earlier. Chapter 14? No. So those are definite uses of numbers. 
Here he's being indefinite at the end of verse 8, and he says, there were so many people, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So John knows how to say something very clearly in an indefinite manner with respect to numbers and counting. So the general rule is every time John uses a number in Revelation, that number is to be taken literally. I'll give you some examples if you don't believe me. He says seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands, ten days, ten kings, ten crowns, ten heads, an eighth head, seven plagues, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, 144,000 witnesses, a second angel, a thir- actually a first angel, a second angel, a third angel, 24 elders, four living beings, 12 apostles, 12 pearls, 12 stones, 72 yards, 1,500 miles, 200 miles, 42 months, 1,260 days, 12 gates, 12 pearls, 12 angels, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 stars, 12 fruits, 12 months, just a few examples. And I would challenge you, every single one of those, he is talking a literal number. He had a vision, and it was supernatural, but he had a literal vision. He literally saw something. And in that vision, he literally saw Satan portrayed as a dragon with seven literal heads. That number is literal. So I won't belabor the point, go on and on. But anyway, I believe it's a literal thousand years. Let's go ahead and look at it. Three points I want to make about this thousand-year period that is yet coming in the future on the earth. Point number one is what happens before the millennium, preparing. And that's uh, point number one is before the millennium, the thousand years, Satan will be confined. Satan will be confined. He will be locked up. He will be shackled. He will be imprisoned. He will be immobilized. He'll be given a prison sentence and thrown in the slammer for a thousand years, just before the thousand-year reign of Christ, just after Christ Return. So Christ returns, he crushes his enemy, he took the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and he threw them into the lake of fire, which is eternal hell, and it says they're alive. He threw them alive, and they're, they're still alive in hell, burning and being tormented. And right after that, this is what God and Jesus will do. Uh, God will release an angel. Verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven. See, commissioned from God, doing God's bidding. Uh, and this angel had a key. And it was a supernatural angelic key. It was a, a key, apparently, that could work on the invisible world. And it was to the abyss. The abyss is mentioned twice already in Revelation. That's where demons hang out. The Antichrist came from the abyss. In other words, he was filled with demons who came from the pit where demons hang out. That's the abyss. It's like a demon prison, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. It was, it was a literal chain, but it was a spiritual supernatural chain. It was a heavenly chain. It wasn't a literal earthly chain. It was, a, but as a literal heavenly chain. How's that possible? I don't know. I don't live in heaven. Hope to find out someday. But there are literal things in heaven. This is a literal chain that this literal angel has, and he's literally going to do something with it. Verse two, it says he predicts that in the future he's going to lay hold of the dragon. Literally, arrest, to seize and arrest, grab him, collar him, throw him down, cuff him, chain him, wrap him up, immobilize him, mace him, whatever. That's what they're doing here. Satan is being arrested by the angelic heavenly police. He's going to lay hold of the dragon. Who's that? Well, it's the serpent of old. That's Genesis chapter 3. That literal snake that Satan went inside of to talk to Adam and Eve who were real people, to deceive them. That was Satan, the same dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, the deceiver, and who's also Satan, the slanderer. So we know for sure who this is. Uh, so he laid hold of him. He arrests him. This is violent action, by the way. Very graphic terminology. Laid hold of him, seized him, grabbed him, arrested him. In the middle of verse 2, bound him with that supernatural, God-given, heavenly, spiritual chain that is literal. That has the ability to confine Satan and limit him as God wills. Bound him. And then that angel takes him and throws him into demon prison. That's the beginning of verse 3. Threw him into the abyss. Demon prison. He gets thrown in the slammer. They shut the door. Verse 3. Shut it. Sealed it. Locked that baby. He is not escaping. God goes to the greatest length to make sure that Satan is concealed so that he can't get out. And he's, how long is his prison sentence? Well, Satan served the longest prison sentence in the history of the world. The end of verse 2. And bound him for a thousand years. I believe that's a literal 1,000 years. So in the future, before the millennium begins, God is going to take Satan, the devil... And he's going to throw him into demon prison and lock him in there. And he's going to be there for 1,000 years. And while Jesus and the saints are reigning on the earth for 1,000 years, Satan is going to be in his prison with no influence whatsoever upon planet earth during that time. 
Because that's what verse 3 goes on to say. He's going to be locked in the slammer, literally, for a thousand years. For what, for what purpose? Why is Satan being thrown in the slammer? Why is he not being thrown in the lake of fire at this point? Well, because God still has a purpose for Satan later at the end of the thousand years. Uh, but during this time, he's confined in the middle of verse 3, so that Satan should not deceive the nations any longer. So during that time of a thousand years on earth, when there are going to be resurrected saints, Jesus reigning, and there are going to be human beings who don't have their resurrection bodies yet, so they're still just like us and they have sin inside of them, living, having families, marrying, populating. And so this populating of humanity is going to grow and grow and grow over the course of that thousand years on earth. But Satan is not going to be allowed to deceive any one of those people because he's going to be confined during the millennium. So that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years is over or is completed. After the thousand years, Satan must be. It is absolutely necessary. It is a divine decree. That's what that means. God is the one in charge of Satan. Satan is not in charge. Satan's not in charge of hell. He's not in charge of anything. God is in charge. And Satan is on God's leash. Isn't that comforting? So he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, Satan must be re- released by God. And the good news is for a very short period of time. That's what that phrase means in the Greek. A very short period of time. How long is that? I have no idea. Hours, minutes, days, I don't know. It's very, very short and that's the good news. I'm sick of Satan. So that's the first thing. That is preparing the millennium. Satan will be restrained. Point number two is during the millennium, during the the entire course of the 1,000... Well, what's going to be happening during this 1,000 years? And God doesn't intend to be exhaustive here in all the details, but he's, he's telling us the highlights of things that we can look forward to and be excited about. So what's going to happen during this 1,000 years on earth? Well, I do know from Matthew chapter 6 that as Jesus prayed, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what's going to be happening for a 1,000 years. Heaven on earth, that's exciting. Heaven on earth, amazing. And it's going to go on for a thousand years. During the millennium, Christ and the saints will rule on earth. Four through six. Let's go ahead and look at it. We're going to make some notes that might be helpful uh, on some confusing parts of the passage. Verse four. Boy, that's got to be one of the longest verses in the New Testament. Here it goes. And John says, and I saw thrones. Thrones. These are regal thrones. These are thrones of royalty. These are also judicial thrones. These are thrones that represent the right to rule and those who are judges. These are seats of authority, delegated authority, but authority nonetheless. These are supernatural thrones, heavenly thrones. Man, I would love to sit on one of those thrones. Can I please? Can I please? Can I? And Jesus says, well, if you're a Christian, absolutely. I already told you that in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. You will, those who overcome will sit down with me on my glorious throne as I also got to sit down on my Father's throne. Isn't that amazing? That is awesome. And not only when you sit on my throne, I'm going to give you a crown to reign as a prince or a princess. Doesn't matter how old you are. If you know me, you're going to have one. So even yes, the kids, yes, you can climb up on the throne. I don't care what your mom and dad said. Come on, climb up on the throne given a, a rod to rule with and to judge. Amazing. Not only that, to, to wield and to smash pottery, to rule over the nations. Wow. Man, that sounds cool. So that's the thrones. Verse 4, I saw these thrones. These are heavenly, God-ordained, Jesus Christ-given thrones to be sat upon. And that's exactly what happened. Look at this. This is kind of curious. And I saw the thrones and they sat upon them. Well, first question, who in the world is they? This is very rare to use a pronoun out of the starting gate without telling us who the pronoun refers to. Who, who is they? And if you read the commentaries, there's all kinds of speculation as to who they is. Usually they refers back to something specific and something close and something in the context. And I think the closest thing in the context, by the way, when John wrote Revelation, he didn't write chapter 1, chapter 2. So in other words, when John wrote this, there's not a chapter break between chapter 19 and 20. You need to see it as one unit. He didn't write with verse breaks either. So 19 and 20 is pretty much talking about the same time in world history, same context. Jesus just returned. Jesus is doing great things. Jesus is setting up thrones. So we limit it to the immediate context thematically and also 
in terms of the text itself as it's laid out. And if you go back, I think the most logical thing that refers to the object of the pronoun they is in verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth when Jesus returned that he was fighting against and their armies assembled to make war against Jesus who sat upon the horse and against, here it is, his army. The saints that return with Christ, they land with him on planet earth. Jesus squashes his enemies. He throws the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire and he begins to reign on earth with his saints. So it is only appropriate in fulfilling prophecies given in Daniel 7, Matthew, Luke, uh, Corinthians chapter 6, that these thrones refer to redeemed believers, that Jesus promised they would sit on thrones with him in his kingdom. And it's right in the immediate context. So the they, they, I would suggest, is his armies. These are redeemed believers. This is, this is the redeemed church. These are redeemed, glorified, resurrected Christians who when we land with Jesus, we get to watch all this exciting stuff and then we get off our supernatural white horse that flies in heaven and we park it somewhere and then we get to go sit on our new cool throne and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. So I'd propose that's who they is. Could very well be in fulfillment of Daniel chapter two verses two, uh, Daniel chapter twelve verses two and three, where it promises that Old Testament saints, all the way from Adam down to the last Old Testament person, whether it's John the Baptist or whoever, Daniel twelve promised that they would be raised from the dead, given glorified bodies before the reign of Christ on the earth. So I believe that they that are sitting on these thrones is the resurrected, glorified church, believers, Christians in their resurrected bodies sitting on these glorious thrones and also Old Testament saints glorified sitting on their thrones as well, ready to rule with Christ in fulfillment to all of his promises. That's who they is in verse four. And they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. Judgment, the ability to rule, to rule over the angels. By the way, during the millennium, the angels aren't ruling. They are not. They are servants and simply servants, ministering servants. The world isn't going to be subjected to angels. That's what Paul reminds us of in Hebrews 2 and also in 1 Corinthians when he tells Christians, don't you rule? Don't you realize and remember that in the future you're going to reign and rule over the angels? So this is redeemed humanity and resurrected humanity that is ruling on those thrones. And they have judgment executing authority on behalf of Christ. That is amazing. So that's the first group of people ruling with Christ for a thousand years. There's another group that will rule with Christ for a thousand years. And that's the middle of or the next part of verse 4, and it says, and, so here's a transition here, and it's a, now I saw a different group of people, redeemed people, and I saw the souls, notice not their physical bodies, I saw the souls, they haven't been resurrected yet, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. Who's that? That's tribulation saints who got murdered and killed. So believing people during the tribulation who get killed during the tribulation by the Antichrist and all of his henchmen, they die. Their spirit goes immediately into the presence of God, as we saw in Revelation chapter 6 under the fifth seal. But they didn't get their resurrection body yet. They wanted a resurrection body. And God said, well, hold on and wait till all of your brethren die and are fulfilled and come to heaven. Then I'll give everybody at the same time a resurrection body of everybody who got killed during the tribulation. That was God's promise in Revelation chapter 6. And the same terminology is used. Souls under the throne of God in heaven, not their bodies. That's who this is. So that's the second group of people. So you got Christians in resurrection bodies, Old Testament saints in resurrection bodies ready to rule, and then Jesus whoom, brings up those who died during the tribulation, who believed in Christ, who were martyred, and then they are going to be given resurrection bodies right there on the spot to rule for a thousand years during the kingdom on earth. We know that because that's what the next phrase says. I saw the souls of those who had been murdered, didn't receive the mark, didn't follow the beast. They died. And then it says, and they came to life from Zao, life, live, came to life. Resurrected is what it means. And they were resurrected, boom, on the spot. So they received, finally, their soul was matched up with the supernatural resurrection, eternal body right there, ready to rule for a thousand years. And he's giving special recognition to the martyrs because he wrote 2,000 years ago when these seven churches in Asia Minor were being persecuted and many Christians were being put to death by Jews who hated them and by the Roman Empire. And he's encouraging them. Christ's church will not be snuffed out. Jesus' promise will be fulfilled when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail. Jesus will prevail. God will prevail. And here's an example of it. So he's encouraging those being persecuted in John's day by giving special attention to these 
tribulation saints who were murdered. They're going to rise and receive resurrection bodies as well and reign with Christ. They're not going to be left out. Be encouraged, Christian. That is a great truth. And they came to life. So they're going to get resurrection bodies. And then it says, and they reigned with Christ, ruled with Him on their thrones with a rod of iron and a crown on their head and a glorious ruling robe. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Literally 1,000 years is how it's going to happen. Then the beginning of verse 5 to the middle of verse 5 is a parenthesis. So if you want to mark that in your Bible, uh, it's a side note, commentary. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. That's the parenthesis. He's reminding us that at the end of the thousand-year period, God's going to have another resurrection, and that is the resurrection of the unjust, the resurrection of the unbelieving. So all unbelievers throughout all of history are going to be given a physical resurrection body at the end of the 1,000-year period. Jesus said that in John chapter 5. They're going to get literal, physical, supernatural, eternal resurrection bodies and then be consigned to hell in the eternal lake of fire forever. So unbelievers even will receive a resurrection body. And that's at the end of the thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life. The rest of the dead refers to unbelievers of all ages. Did not come to life. Did not resurrect until the thousand years is over. That's the end of his parenthesis. Then he goes back to the topic at hand, which was these martyred saints who get killed during the tribulation who are going to be resurrected and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And he picks up on that theme again at the end of verse 5. And that's why he says, this is the first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? The first resurrection is synonymous with many phrases Jesus in the New Testament and Old Testament used. The first resurrection is the same thing as what Jesus called the resurrection of the just. He referred to two kinds of resurrections, the resurrection of the just and the unjust. He referred to the resurrection to eternal life and the resurrection to eternal death. And that's all this is. The first resurrection is the resurrection of all believers, regardless of when they got resurrected. It's the first phase of resurrection, the resurrection of the just. The second resurrection is the resurrection of unbelievers, whenever that happens. So the first resurrection is anybody who's a believer who gets resurrected in glory to reign with Christ. And by the way, the resurrection, the first resurrection, that's the umbrella term, but there are many phases to the first resurrection because people, all believers are not resurrected at the same time with their glorious resurrection body. It happens in phases. We know that because 1 Corinthians 15 is very specific. As a matter of fact, the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the righteous is compared to the analogy of the harvest, the harvest that's all over the Old Testament, the harvest that made sense to the Jews of this day 2,000 years ago. And the harvest happened in three phases. The first phase of the harvest was first fruits. And that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and following says that Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, he is the first fruits. He's the promise that we will all be resurrected. And then it says, and the rest will be, get this, the rest will be resurrected. The rest of believers will be resurrected in their proper order. See, there's an order. So the first fruits was Jesus. I also believe part of the first fruits resurrection was Matthew 27, where it says after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, some believers in Jerusalem came out of the graves in resurrection bodies. That's kind of cool. And they probably ascended back into heaven with Jesus at some point. So that was the first fruits of resurrection, I believe. And then, so you've got the first fruits of the harvest, and then you've got the general harvest where most of the crop is harvested. So that would be analogous to where most believers will be resurrected. So I think the harvest, based on Scripture, is starts with the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 when the church is raptured and re- re- resurrected at that time with Christ at some point. And then also Daniel 12 that talks about Old Testament saints also being resurrected. So that would be the general harvest. And then finally, there was the first fruits, the general harvest, and then it ended with the gleanings, picking up the good stuff, but it was still left on the ground. We can't forget that good stuff, even though it's few. It is the minority, and it's at the end uh, sequentially. And so I believe that the martyred saints who get killed during the tribulation who are resurrected just before the millennium are the gleanings of the resurrection. But all three... The first fruits, the general harvest, and the gleanings all fall under the rubric of the first blessed resurrection. So hopefully that makes sense to you. That's a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of verses I could refer you to. We just don't have time. But great, true. I mean, that's exciting. If you're a Christian, you know Jesus. This is exciting stuff. My back was hurting this week. It's like, ouch. I'm not that old. My body's falling apart. The outer man decayeth day by day. That's what King James says. Spitting all over the place, but that's true. The outer man, but the inner spirit, your 
Jesus who lives in you as a Christian is being renewed daily. But your outer man is a shell. It is cursed. It's fallen apart. It is dying. That's not just uh, a mirage you see in the mirror. That's truth. And that's why I look forward to resurrection. God's going to redeem everything about the Christian, even his physical body. And that's why verse 6 says this. This is a blessed and holy truth. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. Over these, over believers, the second death, eternal hell has no power. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear God's judgment. If you're a Christian, you don't need to fear hell. Isn't that cool? That's the promise. Blessed, it is holy. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God. You know what that means? A priest is somebody who has direct and immediate, intimate Access to the God of the universe. Wow. Direct, immediate, intimate access to the God, the holy God of the universe. That's what we will be. Immediate access to Jesus Christ during the millennium. Maybe pulling and tugging on his robe. I don't know how a zillion people are going to pull on his robe at the same time. I don't know, but Jesus is God. But that's what a priest is. Direct access to almighty God, a kingdom of priests priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign. They will be princes and princesses and co-regents reigning with Christ for 1,000 years. I can't look forward to that. I mean, I look forward to that, and I can't wait to reign with Christ for 1,000 years. What a promise to believers. Let's go on to the third and final point regarding the millennium. So we've got what's going to happen before the millennium, what is happening during the duration, and then what's going to happen at the end of the millennium before we enter the eternal state and that's point number three. After the millennium, Satan will be defeated. Hallelujah. Finally, once and for all. Satan will finally be defeated. Not just confined for a thousand years. By the way, one of the strongest reasons exegetically, I think, that we are not in the kingdom right now. Because according to the Old Testament, when the kingdom happens on earth, Jesus and God are going to transform the earth, literally. Even the geography and the topography and all the deserts are going to blossom like the rose. That ain't happening. This world is falling apart. Seco, uh, the second law of thermodynamics is making this thing just die out like an old carpet. That's what's happening to the earth presently. There are wars going on and bloodshed and poverty and famine, depression, oppression. That's the reality of the world right now on earth. That is not a kingdom. That is not glorious. So there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about how there's going to be a literal kingdom on earth when Messiah rules from Jerusalem. Jeremiah 3.17 specifically says that the Messiah's headquarters and throne will be centered in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be restored. And the nation of Israel will be restored and intact, ruling with Christ during the millennium. And this world is going to be transformed and a portion of the curse is literally going to be removed so that animals and human beings don't fear one another anymore. And that Little babies that are born during that time, they're going to sit down and not just play in the sand and the mud. They're going to play with the rattlesnakes. Isn't that exciting? Real, live rattlesnakes who won't hurt them. And the lion and the lamb will lay down together and not devouring one another. That's the book of Isaiah. I mean, there's so much in Isaiah that talks about details of the way it's going to be during almost the Garden of Eden reinstated on earth. That is not happening. Now. We are not in the kingdom. And another reason I believe that we are not in the kingdom is because according to Revelation 20, Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years during the entire kingdom where he won't be able to deceive anybody. So here's my question. Has Satan been able to deceive anybody in the last 2,000 years here on planet Earth? Absolutely. I mean, it's like a no-brainer. The New Testament is clear. Satan is not bound. He's not being kept from deceiving anybody. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan, your enemy, behold, wake up, be awake, your enemy, the devil, prowls around, present tense, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That doesn't sound like Satan is confined right now. We are not in the millennium. Satan is having a heyday right now. First John 5 says the whole world lies in the lap of Satan and his influence. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 says that unbelievers are currently living out under the power and the influence of Satan, the prince of the dark of, of darkness right now. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, unbelievers are being blinded, satanically blinded by Satan so that they don't have an ability to believe in spiritual truth. They are blinded by Satan right now. That does not sound like Satan has been bound. So scripture is clear. 
we are not in the millennium. So let's go back to this last point, verse 7, how Satan's going to be dealt with once and for all. Uh, and when the thousand years are completed, when the thousand years literally is over, can you imagine Jesus reigned for a thousand years over the entire planet? He was in charge. It was a monarchy, and it was a perfect monarchy. And he reigned for a thousand years. He has all the redeemed people there, but also there's this growing population of humanity, unredeemed humanity, who entered the millennium. And that was believers who survived the tribulation, all those Jews hidden in the desert who didn't get resurrection bodies because they never died. And they entered into the millennium with Christ as believers in a human body. And then there was marriage and there was there were families and there were children and there were offspring. And over a course of a thousand years, earth is repopulated again, probably with millions and millions, maybe billions of people once again. But as one pastor says, God has millions of children, but has zero grandchildren. Just because your parents were believers doesn't mean you're going to be. And so some of these, many of these offspring of the believers who entered the millennium in human bodies are going to not come to Christ. They're not going to believe. They're going to turn against God and they're going to become rebellious in their heart. They're going to hide it on the inside because guess who's in charge? Jesus. If you break the law, you have to deal with the God-man who knows everything and his rod of iron. So the evil is going to be restrained just out of having fear for knowing that Jesus reigns as the God-man in Jerusalem by all these people. But there's going to be an accumulation of unbelieving human beings to the point of millions and maybe even billions at the end of this 1,000-year period. And as a result, verse 7 says this, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released by God from his demon prison. What's he going to do? Verse 8, And he will come out of his demon prison for the purpose to deceive the nations, to deceive all these unbelieving people. And it's going to become overt because they're spawned on by Satan. By the way, it's kind of interesting. Even though Satan wasn't around for a thousand years, there's still going to be sinners. There's still going to be rebellion in the hearts of people. So you can't always blame it on the devil, can you? And anybody that became an unbe- was an unbeliever during by the end of the millennium, they can't blame it on Satan. Well, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. It's the sin in your own heart. You are culpable. Satan helps. Satan makes it worse. Satan is the tempter. But we need to blame ourselves for our sin, especially an unbeliever. Satan will get out, verse 8, and he will come and he's going to deceive the nations. He's going to deceive them to get them to turn against Jesus Christ who reigns as king, uh, which are in the four corners of the earth. That just means the entire earth. The entire earth is going to be deceived of those who don't believe. Gog and Magog, what's that? Well, those I think Gog is the first, or Magog is the first time it's used is in the book of Genesis. It just refers to two historical real places, geographic locations that are in proximity to the nation of Israel. So this last war is going to happen Somewhere in the land of Israel. That's all it's saying. Satan's going to get people, unbelievers, from all over the world, and he's going to bring them to the headquarters of Gog and Magog, which is right next to Palestine, which is surrounding Israel, because King Jesus rules and reigns, not to the White House, but from the Gold House in Jerusalem. And they're going to have a, they're going to launch a surprise attack with millions and millions of people, satanically charged, to overcome Jesus and all of the believers, and try to crush them. That's, Satan's tactic, he's a liar, he's going to fail. So Satan's going to gather, middle of verse 8, all these people together for war, for battle, to crush Jesus Christ. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Man, there's so many people you can't even count on verse 9. Well, here's the war. Look at how the war happens. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of like Jesus' return. It's kind of like the battle of Armageddon that wasn't a battle. It was a slaughter. Verse 9, and they came upon the broad plain of the earth there in Palestine, and surrounded the camp of the saints or believers along with Christ and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem. And fire, here's the battle, and fire came down from heaven. That's how the battle is going to happen. Satan and all of his millions of soldiers and armies, get everybody, ready, aim, fire. And that's exactly what happens. God rains down fire from heaven and consumes every one of them instantaneously, battle over. That's what it says came at the broad plain, came to Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death, which is eternal hell, that only has two occupants at that time when the devil is thrown there. So the devil is going to be thrown into eternal fire at that time where the beast, get this, and the false prophet are present tense also. They are still alive, burning in the lake of fire. Eternal hell is 
conscious torment. That's what the Bible teaches. It's mind-boggling. It's frightening, actually, but that's what it says. So now it's the devil, the false prophet, and the Antichrist are in the lake of fire, the three of them, being tormented in the lake of fire forever and ever. And it says at the end of verse 10, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is eternal, physical, conscious, deserved, divine punishment from the creator and judge of the universe. That is a scary thing. But the good news, the good news, this same God, creator, judge, is also the gracious, patient, loving, merciful Savior who came down in the person of Jesus Christ, who came for the purpose of wooing sinners to Himself to be rescued and saved and forgiven of all of their sins so that their destiny is not the lake of fire. Their destiny is with God and Jesus Christ and all the saints and the glorious angels in heaven in, in peace and bliss, total forgiveness forever. So God has given two options of reality, heaven and hell. And they, they both reflect who God is. A perfect, glorious God. With that, let's go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts for meeting this personal, glorious God personally through the ordinance He gave to His church, communion. Father, thank You for this opportunity You have given us as believers, as saints, to to look to Your Word, which is living and active, inspired by you, the very breath of your eternal mind written down on pages for us to understand. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, our teacher, who who helps us understand it and apply it. Thank you for the truth of the millennium. How glorious. God, the Lord Jesus deserves the millennium, for he is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. And it is so fitting that someday he's literally going to have his prayer answered. Heaven on earth. Look forward to the day when really the world will bow the knee to Jesus on earth as the worthy King, as the worthy Savior. And God, we do pray in light of the realities of judgment that as Christians we would continue to be motivated for praying for the lost, talking to our friends, family, and neighbors who don't know you, planting seeds of the good news of the gospel, praying that the Holy Spirit cultivates those seeds and brings the fruition of salvation into individual lives so that more and more people might be saved and rescued by you because you are. You are a God of love and a gracious, patient, merciful God. We thank you for that great news of the gospel. We commit our time to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.